It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. I am really looking forward to this conversation today because we're going to talk a lot about personality. And I love personality frameworks. <laughs> I love learning more about myself. I love learning about others. This comes up in a number of our shows very organically because it just seems like it's such an interesting way to understand people and learn more about behavior and thought processes. And it's also really interesting to me how some people are really into these personality tests and frameworks like I am, and some people feel very boxed in by them, feel like it's very limiting. And so I'm curious to look at all the different responses to personality tests and frameworks. I thought that that would be an interesting place to start with here, Jackie. I know that you're really passionate about the Enneagram. Am I saying that right, by the way? Yes, you are. Enneagram. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. (laughs) It's one of those words you look at and you're like, wow, I I hope I've been saying it right all of my life. (laughs) But but, uh, for you, I, I was exploring your website. And one thing that I loved that you wrote there was that when we use the word personality, a more accurate word would be essence. Mm-hmm. Personality refers to how you act out loud or how one would describe you. And your essence is who you are in your purest, healthiest form. Yes. That's, that's actually beautiful. Thank you. That's actually the the mental response to people who think that personality typing like this boxes them in. It's like, no, we just, we've got a, a level of health we want you to get to based on your personality. I don't want you to be the healthiest version of your mailman or your mother, like just of you. Oh, I really love that. What drew you to kind of, it seems like basing a lot of your work around personality. Is it something that came out of working with people or is it, was it kind of like a starting point for you with your work? It was a little bit of both. I mean, it's, I, I mean, we can go into detail about this later, but I was in a job where I was doing, seven roles for the price of one at a nonprofit. And I didn't have the language to explain how I was feeling. I didn't have the language to say that this isn't working for me. This isn't my strong suit. This isn't where I'm gifted. I didn't have any of that language. I was fresh out of college and headhunted for that job. So I literally lost my shit, burnt out, moved to North Carolina because I was like, I just got to get the fuck away from here. When I, you know, years later, healing later, whatever, when I decided I wanted to coach, someone offered me their services as a coach, like a coach who coaches coaches. And she said it would be $10,000 meeting once a month or every other week for three months. And then she said, I think it could really help you. And at that point, I had been speaking to her for about 10 minutes and she tried to sell me on this and tell me it it could really help me. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, bitch, you don't know me. So So, uh, for me, I was like, well, if I'm going to coach people, I don't want this one size fits all bullshit. I want to know who I'm working with. I want to know like if Whitney wants to run three miles and Jason wants to run three miles, they've got two different things stopping them. And I want to figure out what that is and work with Whitney and work with Jason and not just this mold that I want them to fit into. And that's kind of how it started. Something I had used for my own life became applicable in my work. Yes, I love that. And and that really resonates with me too, because I think that's part of the reason that I really love any sort of personality test. One of my favorites 
that I discovered a few months ago is Gretchen Rubin's The Four Tendencies. And I bring this up a lot on our show because it really helped me create this framework around who I am and who others are. And have you done that one too? Are you familiar with it, Jackie? I I haven't done it, but you are the second person to bring it up to me. So I'm going to look into it after this. (laughs) It's so fascinating. And my framework or my tendency in that framework is called the questioner. And like you, Jackie, I felt like when I learned this about myself, I was able to better communicate with others and understand myself in work scenarios and relationships and friendships. Because as a questioner, one of the big things is asking why. And so many people in my life have felt frustrated with me when I ask why a lot. And it's something I almost kind of get shamed about. And then when I was able to learn about this part of my personality, I could kind of own it and feel more confident about it versus feeling ashamed or embarrassed because somebody just didn't understand me. And it also gave me more patience and compassion for others, recognizing that they just didn't understand why I was asking this. And so it was easier for me to articulate why I'm a why person. That's so beautiful. I love I love that. That's what you said. I I mean, my goal is to help people develop language to describe who they already are and who they want to be. That's I, I know what pisses me off. I know what foods I like, but I didn't understand how to describe my essence. I didn't know how to describe like, you know, on, from your standpoint, I don't know how to describe why I'm a person who questions, but I have a specific motivation. It's not to make you feel insecure. I have a motivation for doing it and it's for the greater good. Here's my language as to why. So I think that's really powerful. Yeah. And what is it about the Enneagram that because there's so many different personality tests that you can take, right? Mm-hmm. There's like because it's different from Myers-Briggs, right? Yes. yes. Very different. And and because this is where I get confused because there are a lot of different personality tests. And there's is Myers-Briggs where you do like INFJ, like yep. you have the letter. OK, got it. So that one I feel like is so big and well known mm-hmm. and very helpful. But how is the Enneagram different? What's what's the big difference between the two of them? And and why do you find that you're very drawn to the Enneagram personality framework? Yeah. I have to say my runner-up favorite for personality typing is BuzzFeed's What's, What Pasta Are You? But <laughs> Oh, whoa. <laughs> Amazing. Whoa. I'm going to link to that quiz in the show notes because I really want to take that. So for anyone listening, it'll be there for you to discover more yeah, about I'm, yourself. I'm always the spirally one. So essentially, the reason it's my favorite and why I feel like it's different is if you look at Myers-Briggs or something like or anything very similar to that, it's outside in. It's here's your behavior. Here's your characteristics. Here's your tendencies. I'm introverted. I'm extroverted. I'm, I'm judging. I'm feeling. I'm thinking. When you look at the Enneagram, what it does is it, it's it's it'll tell you stereotypically, this is the kind of characteristics that this type of person will have, but it's based on your motivations because all three of us can walk into a room and do the same bullshit and we have three different motivations. So it's based on your core fears, your desires, and your motivations because out of those things is what all your characteristics come from, especially when you are a heightened stressed when you are afraid or angry. You have different characteristics that come out of you. So we can't sit here and go, oh, you did this characteristics. You were this personality type. No, it's it's really sitting and questioning and asking, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And you get to a motivation. And that is what, because that doesn't change. You can control your fear throughout your life, but that core fear still sits inside of you. That's the that's the the quote unquote demon you need to fight your whole life, right? Or your motivation. So some people are motivated to help other people for recognition and they will struggle with that for their whole lives. But that's the scale I was talking about that healthy to unhealthy. We want you to be the healthiest version of that. And that's why I think it's so sustainable because I'm not characteristically the same person I was 
two, three years ago, four months ago, one month ago, but my motivations have not changed. I've just managed them. Ah, that's so enlightening too. And I feel like your work is so incredibly important for helping people verbalize what they're feeling and who they are, because I've noticed that a lot of people struggle with this. And there's like, sometimes it seems like it's a confidence thing. Like it's this fear of either putting yourself in a box or your, some people experience like, if I say who I am, maybe I won't be accepted for that. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate with that. Like, I really? Just want, oh, for sure. I'm kind of surprised that you resonate with that. Well, I, I, okay. Let me, let me provide a little bit of backdrop. I feel like maybe this is just an, I don't know if it's just an LA thing, but I kind of feel like there's a, there's an interesting overlap in, I suppose, the dating and social circles in LA with people that are into transformation, personal development, consciousness work, whatever that community is called that it's like, oh yeah. So are you like INFJ, a number five, a manifesting generator slash introvert, outwardly extrovert? Like there's this list of things <laughs> when you meet someone, not everyone, but like they're trying to like evaluate you and suss you out based on all of these frameworks. And sometimes it does feel, depending on who is wielding that sort of information, to be a bit judgy. Like he was dope and I like I liked him, but yeah, he was a number five and he was a manifesting generator. So I got a pass, hard pass, namaste. Namaste. It's like the new version of what's your sign. Totally. <laughs> so totally. True. Oh my gosh, that's so true. Do you guys know your Enneagram types by any chance? No clue, Jackie. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I feel like I should because I love these frameworks so much, but off the top of my head, I don't know. So that was the other thing I'm curious about, Jackie, is do you feel confident in guessing or do you never allow yourself to guess because you don't want to like project onto your the people around you or anyone that you're coaching? Ooh, a combination of everything you just said. So it's not like, you know, when a, when a kid at, says, I hope I get a puppy for Christmas, they're thinking they're going to get a puppy for Christmas. That's really what it means. So I'm not like that. Like I can say, like, for example, I'm listening to Jason talk and I'm thinking, okay, you're a five or a nine. And I'm guessing, I'm <laughs> guessing in my head, but I don't know you. I don't know your motivation. So you can act like that and you could be like a seven. I don't know. So I, I think of those things and I wonder and I hope and I'm like, oh, okay. But I don't I don't think that's reality. I just never assume and I don't hold on to that assumption. I don't like that. I don't even like when people take the online tests because you can't rank someone's motivations. You can't tally up a score. So I, I don't like to guess, but I do assume I'm a human being and I'll make an ass out of you and me all day. So <laughs> I will definitely assume, but I don't hold on to that. I like to talk to the person and explore and all that kind of stuff. I love that. That's such a, a nice approach too, because it sounds like you're not coming from this place of like ego and like, oh, I know everything. And I've been doing this so long that I, I've got you pegged for a certain thing. You're actually allowing it to be more based in truth and less based on like your projections as as somebody who even has an expertise. And I think that that makes you more appealing to someone like me as a coach because I feel like you're open to the possibilities of who I might be. And I think that's also the trick here. You know, some people just get so confident about the, oh, you're a classic nine, you know? Yeah. <laughs> As you said that, I feel like I have a vague recollection of myself being a nine. And I was trying to see if I'd written this down somewhere on my computer, but have not found any luck yet. So what do you think is the best way to find this out? Is Because you kind of implied you didn't recommend taking a test. How else do you yeah. find out if you don't take an online test? You can read a book and they'll take you, you know, through all the nine types or you can talk to a coach about it. I would recommend either. But like so the reason I don't recommend it is I just think that when you look at a coach or when you're reading a book, you can put the book down. You can look at the coach and 
let that thing ask you why. So if I ask you, why did you not get in your car this morning? Oh, I was scared. Why? Because I'm scared that someone's going to hit me. Why? Like just being able to dig deeper and deeper and a test can't do that. So that test is measuring characteristics and not really exploring the motivations of it. I mean, in some ways it's helpful, but for example, with Enneagram types, and I know this is a little like, this is like level two stuff, but when a type is stressed, they borrow and act like a different number than they actually are. So when I took the test, yeah. When I took the test, I'm a two, I'm a helper, I'm an advocate. That's my type, the sweet little angelic little people. Yeah. So when I took my test, I was in the middle of this healing journey, this burnout, this rage that I was feeling. And I kept typing as an eight whose nickname is the challenger. And that I was reading it and I was like, I feel like I've done this stuff, but this doesn't feel like me. And I almost like threw the whole Enneagram away. And then someone was like, no, 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 just just read a book. Just read a book. And I did. And I was like, holy shit, I'm a two. (laughs) So, And I didn't eat or talk to anyone for three days because I was very sad about it. (laughs) (laughs) What book was this that you read? I read uh, The Wisdom of the Enneagram. Ooh, I love that title. It's a great book. You kind of teased Jackie, and and now I feel like I really want to invite you because I know that we we could encourage the listener or ourselves to read a book or or look online. But you you mentioned these quick little summaries of each number, and if mm-hmm. you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear just quick little summaries of of what each number represents. A little a little bite sized pizza pocket, if you want to give it to us. Yeah, I can totally do that. You guys ready? <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. It typically you'll see it in books like starting with type eight and ending with type seven, but I'm going to do it one through nine because it's easier. So Enneagram type one is called the perfectionist or the reformer. I like the word reformer because they like to reform things as they go. They like to, they see a problem and they see a solution and they think it's their responsibility to do it. They're really organized, if not on their desk, then in their head. And they typically see things in black and white. For them, their core fear and what they're motivated by is if they they feel like if the world around them is not perfect, if the things that they deem as their own responsibility are not perfect, they are not perfect. And they fear being bad or wrong or even like evil and unredeemable. So that's the type one in a nutshell. The type two is called the helper or the advocate. I like the ninja. That's the best one. So <laughs> <laughs> they are, they're really like, they're the people that will stay at your party until all the dishes are done. They are the people who will help you move at 6 a.m. on a Saturday and bring bagels. They are they are genuinely the helpers. They love to help people. They have no problem being the power behind the throne. But for them, what they're motivated by is being needed. They feel like they need to self-abnegate, put their needs to the side, and help other people to feel value. Their fear is being unworthy of love, unlovable at all, and being rejected, mainly just that they're not loved, they're just tolerated. So they feel that they need to help other people to get that love. Type three is called the achiever or the performer. I like some people say the best. I think it's very fitting. They're charming. They're dressed to kill. They're like usually the CEO in the company or that one employee that keeps moving up and up and up. They are go-getters. They reach goals like mad. And for them, they feel that their worth is tied to their works. Like they go hand in hand. And so what's going to happen for them is they often struggle with imposter syndrome, this inner tension of my worth is based in my works, but at the same time, I didn't really earn where I am. So that's the struggle they try to fill. So they push emotions down because emotions get in the way of them trying to reach goals and, and do their thing, but they're really stuck trying to earn more so that they can really prove their worth. The Enneagram type four is called the individualist or the romantic, and they don't like have emotions or do emotions. They are emotions. (laughs) Like 
They're very emotional people. And that is their superpower. They can sit with anyone in a crisis, anyone in a happy moment. They will feel a full spectrum of emotions. And they have a a deep-seated need to be unique. And it's not just a fashion thing. It's just they need to be different. And for them, they feel if they're not different, if they're not standing out, if they're not making some kind of wave, they're going to be left behind, forgotten, or kind of be lost in the abyss. And and for them, it's not just, like I said, being different. It's leaving their mark. Like, I won't leave my mark here. And they feel like they're going to be forgotten. For the Enneagram Type 5, they're called the observer or the theorist. Theorist is my favorite because that's what they're doing. They're always making theories. They are typically more introverted and they are knowledge-based. So they don't really, they have emotions and they can be sensitive. They're just not emotional. And they use knowledge and gain knowledge because knowledge takes up less energy than feelings. And so for them, they're very big on conserving their energy. And they, you know, some of us might wake up with 90% battery. They might wake up with 40 and they're like, well, how the fuck do I ration this throughout the day? And they, they're core fear is double-sided. It's my fear of being depleted of energy, but also I don't want to be seen as incompetent. So there's two different motivations for storing up this knowledge, A, to not run out of energy, and B, to not be seen as stupid. Type six, which I love the type six, is called the loyalist or the guardian. And I think guardian's perfect because they are the guardian for the rules. They are kind of like Whitney said, they're the people who question everything. I don't like to say, like a lot of the memes and shit on Instagram will say like, oh, they are scaredy cats. And I just like to say that's not true. They're really, really confident when they have all the information they need, but they kind of live in code yellow all the time. So like what could possibly go wrong might go wrong. So here's what I'm thinking. And so they're the people that you're like, wow, you're so negative. And they're like, no, I'm just I'm just trying to explain to you what could go wrong so you could think of it so it doesn't go wrong. For them, their fear is fear itself, fear of, you know, being without support, fear of being alone, fear of, you know, not being able to protect themselves, their family and the people around them. And that anything could go wrong at any time. So type seven, which I love the type seven, they are like the Peter Pan of the Enneagram. They're called the enthusiast or the party. But for them, they are always down for a last minute adventure. So you want to go to the theme park? Yes. You want to go to Europe? Yes. They are down to do anything fun. But for them, they go from one experience to the next. And then they live in this abundance. But they do it because they are afraid of coming face to face with their deep emotional pain. I'm not talking about like, I don't want to run a mile because I might scrape my knee kind of pain. I'm talking about If I deal with this hurtful breakup and I sit across a counselor and talk about it, then everything else that's in me that has been hiding is going to come out and I do not want to be trapped in my emotional pain. And so they will go from one fun experience to the next so that they don't have to sit and be trapped in their pain. The Enneagram type eight is the challenger or the contrarian. Some people say the dragon. I think it's very fitting. And they are the most misunderstood type on the Enneagram. Yes, they are the most forward. They can be the most aggressive. They are that bull in a china shop. They in a courtroom, they'll sue God and win. Like that's 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 them as people. But for them, their motivations and their fears, they don't want to be rejected or blindsided or at the mercy of injustice. So for them, yeah, they're tough and they're going to stand their ground. But a lot of times they stomp on the ice between two people, but between them and someone else to see if that person's really in it because they don't want that rejection. So that toughness is sometimes a front and they are always standing up for the underdog. So if you are being bullied and there's an eight in the room, you're going to know it because they hate people being at the mercy of injustices, especially themselves. The Enneagram type nine is the peacemaker or the wallflower. And they are, I have to say, like they're the sweethearts of the Enneagram. They are They seem quieter. They're usually not when you get to know them, but they do what their name says. They make 
peace and they keep peace. They feel like it's their responsibility because their core fear is conflict, especially tension and direct conflict. So what's going to end up happening is they're going to end up merging with what everybody else wants and really having a hard time making decisions because they don't know how it affects people. So they will not choose the restaurant that the whole group goes to without asking a million times if that's okay. They won't pull the trigger on things. So they, they kind of fear this conflict and they won't make decisions or say what's really on their mind. And so they get to a point where they're like, do the people around me really actually know me through no fault of their own because they put themselves on the back burner really just to keep peace. And that's not the way that you know, you're supposed to keep peace, but that's what they think. And so that's a little generalization of the type of the nine types. Okay. So (laughs) what happens? Wait, does it, if I identify a little bit with each one, does it mean that I have multiple personality disorder? <laughs> no, because, but... Because cause literally, Jackie, there was li- some more acute than others, but a little nugget of each one, I was like, oh, shit, which one am I now? Okay, don't get mad at me, and we can talk about this later after the recording, but people, <laughs> people, people who identify eventually as type nine identify as every other type first. Holy smokes. <laughs> Well, it's because you can you can see through everyone's eyes. Like, how else do you merge with people or or say like, yeah, that's good. Like, yeah, that's fine. I'm fine with that without actually seeing through their eyes first. So nines actually, so they make really great like referees and, and coaches and counselors because they can listen to all sides. They're great at mediating and understanding like life inside everyone's shoes. I just, I feel like I'm, I'm, my mind is going absolutely crazy right now because first of all, it's the rampant desire, of course, wanting to know. Right. So I, 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 yeah. I feel like now I must know my number. But also, yeah, the, the interesting sort of, qu- although I have to say on my initial kind of gut reaction when, when you were describing a four about the sensitivity, mm-hmm. that, that's been one thing that I, I think I've struggled with a lot in my life. We've talked about this in previous episodes of, I think, especially as a, I guess, heterosexual man in American society, you know, there, mm-hmm. there's been sort of a demonization or a squelching of any sort of emotion, sensitivity, oh, yeah. depth in that regard. So for me, being a really sensitive man in America, you know, that's been a thing that I've had to really kind of work through my entire life. So immediately, as soon as you kind of said four, I was like, mm, I wonder, meh. So I don't know. That's what my gut said, at least. Yeah. Well, you're not you're not wrong. In the USA, it's pretty much death to the beta male, you know. So it's like a- any man who really is not necessarily this like alpha who breathes smoke out of his nose is like not a man, and I think that's bullshit. Yeah. So for sure, for sure. I mean, and it's 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 imprinting from the youngest the youngest age. I mean, this is kind of a sidebar, but yeah, uh, I I think for me, it's it's been such a long process of of accepting my sensitivity and accepting my depth of emotion and allowing people to have whatever their reactions are because there's a variety of reactions to it. Mm-hmm. But also the gift of, I think, this work and the reason that I, I'm definitely becoming more curious as we talk to you is I feel like in understanding who I am, and I love this word essence, I love it so much that as I suppose discover, for lack of a better word, what my my true essence is and the layers of that, and not in a staunch kind of not malleable way of like, this is who I am and I'm not going to change, like not in that regard, but more more like, okay, this is this is what I feel the core of my being and using that as a barometer or a compass to navigate life. I find that really interesting because I have to say that nine times out of 10, the things that we feel innately we need to hide or make excuses for are actually our superpower. So- Go into uh, that more, please. Yeah. Go into that more. <laughs> so, That's juicy. Yeah, it's very juicy, right? So sexy. So when, <laughs> yeah. when I meet with a client or even just a friend who's like, hey, can I pick your brain? And I'm like, no, I'm probably going to charge you, but sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> what, a lot of times they 
when they come to me, they're like, or after we go through the Enneagram type, even before they're like, I have like, if, for example, your, your example, Jason, like I'm a really sensitive guy and I, I just, I need to figure out what's wrong with me. Or I just, I feel like I want to help everyone all the time. I need to figure out what's wrong with me. I feel like I have to question everything all the time. But that's actually, those things are your superpowers. The things that you feel like you need to hide or make excuses for, just because someone has like questioned you about that thing once because of their own insecurity. We build this like castle in our head that says like, oh, I have to hide this part of me. People don't like this part of me. That's your superpower. Like my superpower is making people feel so valued by stepping in and doing that one favor that no one else ever fucking wants to do. Or like someone who is a four and is a very sensitive person, like their superpower is that everyone around them feels known, seen and understood due to sensitivity. For someone who is a six who likes to question everything, their superpower is that they protect people because they think of every single freaking scenario that other people don't think of. Those things that we feel like we have to hide from other people and from ourselves, the things that we deem flaws nine times out of 10, it's our superpower. You know, it's also interesting is reading through your website and you talk about, and you mentioned this as well, is, is a lot of our type is based on our core fears and those Mm -hmm. motivations. And I wonder, does that actually, I feel like because a lot of people try to hide their fears or compensate for them, and and there's so much shame around us, I think that's, that's part of this. I wonder if that actually can get in your way of like easily knowing what your type is Mm -hmm. because it's like you're it's so hard for you to determine it yourself if you're always trying to like be in denial of some of those hard elements of yourself. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes 100% sense. So, when I do a typing session with somebody, I ask them a bunch of questions first. I kind of categorize them in like are they a head person, a heart person, or like a gut person, right? Like what's their main center of intelligence? Then I go based on the types in that center. Then I go through characteristics. Then I tell stories and I help them to relate and to understand. All the way at the end is when I go over the core fears because we bend the page and close the book on our core fear. Our, our whole lives are one big coping mechanism around our core fears. So people don't readily know that. I, I like to shoot them in the foot at the end because they won't relate to it. Like what fucking two, right? Like me, I'm a two. I would have never admitted to being like, oh yeah, like my core fear is like not being wanted. Ugh. Like, no, I would I would have been like, no, everybody likes me. Everybody wants me. I'm very helpful. But when I look at my own training and stuff and I, and I see that I'm going through characteristics and I'm going through these values, these heart mindsets, these pain points, these childhood wounds. And then all of a sudden I say, here's the core fear. This is actually the thing that makes all of those things make sense. They're like, oh shit. So, yeah. Yeah. It's almost as for me, when I was listening to you describe (laughs) the types, I was really identifying with type one until like there was a certain part that kind of like triggered me. And I was like, oh, I really hope I'm not a type one. (laughs) (laughs) Because like, I think it was a lot about, I mean, for me right now, part of my, my personal work has been researching perfectionism and I get really triggered because I don't want to be a perfectionist. But then part of me is like, is that tendency <laughs> within myself a characteristic of being a perfectionist? And I used to kind of like being known as a perfectionist because I thought it's a positive thing until I started researching it more and realized like, ouch, like yeah. being a perfectionist is not necessarily a great thing. But then I just can identify so much. And I think that's part of my core fear. I think what you were, when you were describing the type one, I was thinking about how there's just so much within me that wants to get things right. And, Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's a, it's, that is part of my coping mechanism because I have a lot of fears around being wrong or there's just like this whole operating system is wanting to do the right thing, partially from like an ethical perspective, but partially yeah. because of shame and being afraid to make mistakes. And that, that's been a huge part of my work. And what I don't know, I'm curious for you, Jackie, since your type doesn't change throughout your life, but we as human beings are constantly evolving if, if we're choosing to. I, I suppose not everybody goes right. through a process of a lot of evolution because I think you have to be willing and open and to get uncomfortable. I mean, that's the whole theme of, of our show here is like all the growth that can come when you're outside of your comfort zone. And when you're willing to examine yourself and, and look at life from all these different perspectives and open to all this information, you really can learn and shift and evolve. But if your core type doesn't change, that's kind of interesting mm -hmm. because you're kind of like the same person that's changing. And it's like different versions of yourself, but still at the core the same. And that's in, that's hard for me to wrap my head around. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Well, actually, so it's it's actually a lot more, it's complicated, but it's a lot more simple than we think it is. So the reality of it is, is you know, like I said in the beginning, I don't want you to be the healthiest version of your mom or your dad or your mailman. It's going to be you. So you're already like on this linear scale. I like to tell people it's kind of like with their superpower, right? If you don't have a superpower, you have a downfall and then you grow and you have a superpower. So like if you think of like a, any hero who grows into themselves as a hero, who grows into their power, like Superman doesn't become Batman the healthier he gets. He just becomes the healthiest version of Superman. And so like like me being really motivated to help people with this shitty motivation of feeling like I have to be needed, my motivation to help people has not changed. My motivation as to why I need to help people has changed drastically. So I'm still going to be myself, but that these inner lies start to like unravel a little bit. And so now I want to help people because it's who I am as a person. And I love seeing the smile across people's faces and making them feel loved. I am motivated by that, but I also have boundaries that stay in my way. And that's a huge part of the growth. I want to ask you a question though, Whitney, and this might solidify if you're a one or not. <laughs> but, and we can talk about it later too, but type ones tend to struggle and, and they're the only people who really get this with an inner critic. And it's like, doesn't everyone have that? Doesn't everyone have that inner voice that berates them every time they're about to do something or they do something or they get some negative feedback or criticism? Or But it's like type ones have this inner critic, this inner voice that like parents them and, and controls them and tells them what everybody else is thinking about them all the time. Yeah, okay. I do for sure. We got Whitney, guys. <laughs> I know. I'm like, it, it's so funny because, again, like that was the one. And I don't know if it was because it was the first one you read or not, but there's just like this feel, this sense that I have that that's what I am. And the inner critic work is something I reflect on a lot. And it, it's interesting to have this conversation right now because there's part of me that's like, is this, do I feel like a one just because I've been paying so much attention to this stuff recently, like the perfectionism and the inner critic and noticing my desire to control things and all of that? Or maybe it's just a coincidence that I'm kind of more open to acknowledging those sides of myself and working on them. And I, I think what's interesting as we talk about this is that what you're saying about not changing who you are, just kind of evolving or or becoming a better version of yourself if that if that's the right yeah. way to phrase it. I actually take a I'm not fully confident about this idea of like be your best self or better version of yourself. Like there's something about that that doesn't feel quite right or maybe it's just become kind of a cliché thing. I th I right? honestly agree with you. Like it is so cliché and and I think 
we hear that a lot. Be the best version of yourself. What the fuck does that mean? Like, exactly. you're, not, you. you're not telling me yeah. anything about me. But if someone lays out a scale, like I, this I do what I do with my clients, I say, okay, within your type, when your motivations are warped, this is one side of the scale. When your motivations are clear and healthy, this is the other side of the scale. I make it so ABC for people because how am I supposed to know? So this is the, these are like unhealthy characteristics. These are average characteristics and these are healthy characteristics. And so they'll start to notice themselves. Oh my God, like I do do this when I'm like in a really great mood. I do do this when I'm spiraling and I'm really depressed or, and they start to be the own, like their own measuring stick. Cause that's the thing. Like if you tell people be the best version of yourself and there's no measuring stick and there's no language or explanation, like people just start to get trapped in this. Like I have to be better, but I don't know what the hell better is. Yes. I hate that. When I say be the best version of yourself, I also like to equip people with what does that mean? And what does that look like for you? And help them decide what that looks like. I love this because I think it it moves so much beyond the one size fits all approach that I, Whitney and I've discussed seeing so much in the transformational sphere and coaching and, and personal development is is the roadmaps and the formulas and the 12 steps. And, and I'm not dogging anyone specifically, but as kind of an overarching observation, Jackie, it, it in many cases, just to piggyback what we're saying, s- seems to remove the individuality. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, this is a one-size-fits-all approach to improving your life. And right. you know, the other, the other part I take umbrage with as a tangent, we get very tangential here, is, is that, and I'm curious with your experience with being an NLP, neurolinguistic programming practitioner and someone who studied it, it, it seems to me that there, a lot of coaches and these quote-unquote experts are encoding their marketing messaging, their copy with a lot of very subversive, not enough messaging. And and in some cases, not even subversive at all. Very, very blunt. Like, hey, you know, if you're, you've been in the game this long and you're an entrepreneur and you're not making six figures yet and you're not making seven figures, you know, you're a fucking failure. It's abusive. Yeah. And and I notice it's happening a lot. Like it actually is kind of, I don't know about the norm in coaching, but I see a lot of it. And I'm curious in terms of language and the power of language and the hypnotic programmable elements of how we use language and the energy behind it, how does that that all fit in together? And, and, and I guess, what's your framework on that lexicon? Yeah. So I love the word lexicon. Thank you. Um, so I, I love that. I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, that is such a great word. <laughs> I studied, well, I studied theology in college. So that was, that. that's a good word for me. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into that too. <laughs> it was a big mistake. So speaking, here's the thing. When it comes to that, like you're right, like that abusive language, it speaks to the imposter syndrome in people on purpose and it makes them move forward so they can be like as this is why I don't speak to people that way, because I know for a fact as a coach, if I tell people you're not where you should be, the people who feel like they're not where they should be will buy anything I sell them. And I don't like that. I don't want that. I like to pose questions, especially when it comes to the combination of Enneagram and and NLP, because here's the thing. NLP is simply this in a nutshell. Here is my entire 36 hours of training on the subject. When I tell you something, based on your previous experiences, your brain already erases half of what I say and replaces it with something in a way that you'll understand it. So you understand context, but you're not understanding what I'm saying. You're understanding it based on your experience. So that's why people who are, they have like a victim mindset, always think everything's about them. This is why people who are experiencing or healing from trauma think that everything can be a traumatic situation for them, right? So I like to ask people questions that help them use parts of their brain that are active and not subconscious. So when I talk to people, like for example, when I talk to people about the Enneagram or their worldview, I ask them like, okay, with a two who feels like they need to, to help and to fit, whatever. I always ask them, can you ask yourself, is this mine to fix and answer rationally? 
Because what it's going to do is it's going to start to create a new experience. It's going to start to create a new context. The next time someone asks for a favor, the first thing they're going to think is, is this mine to fix? And then pretty soon it's going to be muscle memory. So I do that with all of the types. I like to refer. I don't want you to, I don't want to tell you you're not enough. Like that's, you're already telling yourself you're not enough. You don't need one more person telling you that. I don't want to tell you that. I want you to take ownership. And if you really want to help to go help someone move at 6 a.m., perfect, go do it. But I think at the same time, equipping people with these questions, like, am I just being overly suspicious about this person? Or like for someone who's a type one, am I really angry about this? Or is this misdirected anger about something else? And when you ask yourself these really thoughtful questions that you need your active brain for, they start to become muscle memory and they start to become the new context by which you understand everything. So your brain, yeah, it's still going to erase half the information you hear, but it's going to replace it with a healthier context. So in terms of, I guess the word that comes up for me is almost reprogramming? Like how does neuroplasticity and the idea that we can reprogram, deprogram, create new neural pathways, how does that fit into your whole approach and and how does all that research kind of land for you? What's your take on it? Yeah. So I am not, I have to say I'm not a neuroscientist. I didn't study this. I've just, I've just done a lot of research. And and I have to say that, like I tell people all the time, if you tell yourself you're stupid every day for 10 years, it's not enough to just stop telling yourself you're stupid because that's your reality. Your thoughts literally change the shape, the neurons and the pathways, everything that you just said, it changes everything. So whatever core belief you're believing, especially as it relates to the Enneagram and, and your worldviews, that's your reality for a really long time. I can sit here and I can tell you to your face that being sensitive is not a bad thing. And you can still believe that for the rest of your life, because, but you have to do that work in specifically unprogramming it. Some people do it via affirmations. Some people just do these, you know, I ask people to do why exercises where they ask themselves why until they feel like they've hit their actual answer and not their deflective, I don't know, answer. Sounds great to me. (laughs) I could ask why all day long. (laughs) Whereas somebody else might hear that and be like, that's the last thing I want to do. Oh, yeah. 100%. Like somebody like a seven who doesn't want to be trapped in emotional pain knows that with the word why comes pain. So they're not going to want to do it. But but realistically, when it comes to like something like neuroplasticity, it requires responsibility and ownership. Knowing that you think the wrong way about something or noticing that your thoughts are going off the rails or landing on rumble strips too, far too often is not enough. It actually has to be a reprogramming of yourself. And that's why people like they bullshit on affirmations. But affirmation, like I told myself that I'm the cutest person I know. And I literally started to look cuter. <laughs> That's I am not <laughs> I started to look cute. I looked in the mirror and I was like, God, I'm so cute. <laughs> I love that. Do you have a source for affirmations that you really like? Or is it more for you just thinking about what you need and then writing it down and saying those out loud to yourself? How do you find affirmations to be most effective for you and your clients? When it comes to my clients, I, I help them through affirmations by asking them what do they feel the most insecure about or the most afraid about or you know badly about themselves. I have a bunch of worksheets that trick them into giving me these answers. So I I do that for myself. I just, it's based on my needs. I feel like I'm a very self-aware person. But in the beginning, I would just Pinterest affirmations and Google affirmations. And that one really hurt my feelings because I don't believe it about myself. Okay, that's the one I need to to focus on. I'm, I'm also hoping within the next year or so to finish. I'm writing a 365 book of affirmations for each Enneagram type, but it's really hard to like finish nine books at the same time. Yeah. So so I'm hoping to do that within the next year and and get that out there. But really, I think people, people need to pay attention to what hurts their feelings. 
you know, and, yep. and that tells you a lot about yourself. And when it comes to affirmations, the one that hurts you the most because you don't feel like it really apply, like you don't deserve it or you feel like it just doesn't apply to you, that's usually the one you need to focus on. That's such a great piece of advice. And I'm curious, Jason, for you, I mean, I feel like through this conversation at this point, I'm thinking I'm probably a one type. <laughs> but for you, Jason, since you were initially feeling like you could identify with all of them, is there something based on your triggers or fears that you think would help you identify your type? I mean, you talk a lot about on the show and offline about your fear of abandonment. That yeah. seems to be like one of your core fears and yeah. triggers, if I may say. Yeah, that's accurate. I, I think, you know, if I were to, at my current frame of understanding, get to what I would characterize as a core wound. I mean, there are certainly others that I'm still unraveling, you know, unworthiness, not enoughness, feeling like I have to prove myself. I have a chip on my shoulder. But I really, in my current understanding, have kind of looked at that as coping mechanisms to avoid abandonment. And to me, that's as far back as I can go with my childhood with the issues with my dad. We talked about that on the, the father's episode. I think that's still every other compensatory mechanism or way of avoidance or way of trying to protect myself. Ultimately, I think, again, as far as I understand, a way to avoid being abandoned. I have thoughts. <laughs> Go <laughs> so on, Jackie. You, Go you on. May, you may actually be a four because so the one of the- I was just thinking that. I'm so oh. glad you said that because it's like, you know, the individualist with temperamental, Jason, bingo. <laughs> yeah, no shock I'm gonna, there. I'm going to call you out here. Go for it. Dramatic as well, very expressive, very sensitive, and you brought that up too earlier, Jason. Well, yeah, that, that's a good characterization. Dramatic, <laughs> temperamental. Uh, yeah, yeah. So fours do struggle a lot with the fear of abandonment, and it has to do with this. Like, I'm trying to use my soft voice, but something is missing in me. Something is not right. And so they struggle a lot with envy. And it's not like I hate you and I want what you have, but it's you look at other people and their successes and what they do. And there's kind of like, like what's what's missing in me? What's wrong with me that I can't have the things that I oh want? Oh my God. And uh. hold on, you're going to hate me a little bit more. The childhood wound of the four, the childhood message that a four tends to grow up understanding based on their worldview is it's not okay to be too much, but it's not okay to not be enough. Say that one more time. It's not okay to be too much, but it's not okay to not be enough. Mm. That gave me chills just hearing that because just talking about childhood wounds, and I know one of your interests or passions, Jackie, is about repressed memories and trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And man, I mean, this is so fascinating. But go on. I, I think that you probably have some more to say about type four. I actually just want to hear what Jason's thoughts are because I think I just hit him in the crotch. Yeah, I, I be sure to wear a cup on this podcast moving forward. <laughs> I yeah, it's it's boy, it's so interesting because I I I felt like there was this dualistic thing that I sort of again, it's very hard for me to discern between what is part of my innate essence as a being and what are coping mechanisms that I learned to to use and leverage in childhood. Here's what I mean by that. I was always the life of the party. I was always the one entertaining everyone, making everyone laugh, being the, the comedian, being the one who was improvising and doing voices and characters. I mean, I was on a stage as young as I can remember. You know, my mom put me on a stage, was like, go you use that energy. But there was always this sense of no matter how many people 
I would get to laugh or have a good time or be entertaining. There was the, always this sense of, I'm still not enough. I'm still mm-hmm. not good enough. Yeah. Like there's, there's someone better than me. There's someone funnier than me. There's someone more successful than me. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And it became this sort of voracious empty pit inside of me that could never be filled. You know, it's no matter what, I suppose things or heights or successes I would experience in adulthood, it never felt like enough. Like I'm, I'm actually struggling with that right now of, of during this time of COVID when we're recording this and, and some, I suppose, evolutions or de-evolutions in my career and, and my, my life path. It's like, whoa, this is all very relevant. And, and I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that in one way that I developed or honed in on this thing to entertain people, right, and, and make them laugh and feel, make them feel good was that if I'm entertaining you and making you laugh and bringing you joy, you'll never abandon me because mm-hmm. I'm bringing you too much goodness. Yeah. And that's that's the way you're standing out and being unique. This is the way you're leaving your marks that you're not forgotten. And yes, what you were speaking about earlier actually sounds like I, I put a podcast episode out about how each of the nine types self-sabotages. And for the type four, it's comparative thinking and not just, oh, me and me and Jeff and like comparing myself to him, but like comparing your past to your present and your present to your future. It's like this, this I, I don't want to say it's like a lack of happiness or or whatever. I, I don't want to use that language, but really just saying like, okay, I'm not where I should be. I'm not where I want to be right now, ideally, because I'm, I'm idealizing what, what the perfect life looks like. So I have a hard time really settling and choosing because it's like, I says, this is exactly what I'm idealizing. But then you look at your present to your future and you are struggling because it doesn't look like where you want to be. So it's like, I didn't come as far as I'd like to have come and I'm not as far as I'd like to be right now. And that ends up self-sabotaging things like a lot of my clients who are for is like, they don't say yes to the second interview. They don't say yes to the second date because they're like, I just, I'm not sure if that's what I want because they don't really know what is what they want because they feel like just something's missing inside of them. And that's like a priority, but it's not really ever vocalized. Mm, that resonates. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like there's a part of me right now that's like, oh no, she sees me. Oh no. <laughs> looking at me you naked. can't hide it. You can't hide it. Well, Jackie, I'm curious since another topic that you express based on your personal experiences is the role of depression and anxiety. And those are things Jason talks very frequently about with that. And I'm curious like how that shows up when you figure out your type and what you've learned about those two elements of life, which right now have been coming up a lot. I mean, anxiety especially comes up so much. I feel like there's something about COVID and all the uncertainty around it and and the fears and the panic. Yeah. It has really brought anxiety to the surface, which in a way I think is so important for us as a society to address our anxieties and, and learn not just like our coping mechanisms, but how can we really address it. Here's the thing. I am I have a friend who's an anxiety coach. And one of the first things she taught me, I made an appointment with her the second my, you know, the second businesses started shutting down because I was shitting my pants. I was like, what's going to happen? I have, a, I have an autoimmune disorder. I'm going to get sick. I'm going to die. Everyone's going to die. I'm going to run out of food. It was just, it was so crazy. And then I, I kept thinking about my friends and she told me, she's like, your anxiety is your friend. And I was like, get out of my face. What does that mean? And she was like, your anxiety is is your body, your mind, your spirit telling you something is not right or something about the way you've always thought is not right. So it's either something is actually visibly, tangibly wrong in my situation right now or everything is fine, but I'm having anxiety for no reason, which means there's a pattern in my thinking that makes me think that something is not right. And she's like, your anxiety is a gift. 
because it points you in a direction if you if you press into it enough. And that's the thing I, I'm noticing a lot of people like I notice an influx in clients during COVID because people do not want to be alone with themselves. And the second they're alone with themselves, they feel like something is not right. And I'm like, no, like you're just waking up. Good morning. You're just recognizing who you are. You're just recognizing your tendencies. Now, I, I don't want to when it comes to depression, I don't really like want to play with that because, you know, depression is very serious and I don't want to downplay it or anything like that. And so is anxiety. But when it comes to dealing with the day to day, like if you're not struggling with manic depression or anxiety and, and you feel like, you know, this is just coming up because of the pandemic. This is, you know, who I'm speaking to right now. But really, it, essentially, it's just people feel like something is wrong because they feel like they're trapped with themselves. They're trapped with the part of themselves they've tried to bend the page and close the book on. You have no choice but to see that. You take you with you wherever you go. And if you've been home alone for four months, guess who's with you? You. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like this this gift of the quarantine and, and this whole global situation is, I don't want to use the word forcing, that feels harsh and punitive, but I, mm -hmm. I think it's inviting people with a lot of enthusiasm and, mm -hmm. and presence to say, these things that you have been ignoring through overwork, through mm -hmm. ambition, through stressing yourself, through all of these external distractions, guess what? We're, we're going to remove concerts. We're going to remove movies. We're yeah. going to take the sports away. We're going to basically- Make it hard to get together and have sex. Yeah, com completely. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, all of these social capitalistic distractions that we have, we're just like, yeah, we're going to strip all those away. And, and mm -hmm. you describing this, Jackie, of we get to be with ourselves. Many people maybe taking a look at some things that they have tried to bury or compartmentalize. I mean, there, there are certainly things that have come up for me where I'm like, oh, hello, darkness, my old friend. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to run from that or compartmentalize it or, or shame myself for these aspects of my being. And, and what a gift that's been. And, and I'm also curious because you, you had a little tidbit and I want to, I want to loop back to, you said that you graduated with a, a BA in theology and, yeah. and I'm, curious to just not only overlay, I suppose, all of this work at understanding ourselves, loving ourselves, learning ourselves, but I'm curious how your your philosophy, your spiritual philosophies, mm. and your understanding of God and your understanding of our, our beingness in the universe, how, mm. first of all, what is that for you? What do you believe God is? What do you believe we are? I mean, these are like macro questions. Yeah. And and how does your spiritual belief tie into you, the work that you're doing? So here's the thing. I, I have shifted and did a lot of spiritual unlearning when it came to what I believe. I, I, you know, I still believe that there is whatever, however you want to call it, there's someone who is managing the crane when it comes to the universe, you know, and there's just something bigger out there. But for me, what and I'm going to use the word divine because I think it, anyone can find it applicable. I think that we are all created in some kind of divine image, whatever that looks like, whether it's a piece of the universe or a piece of the moon or the star. I always tell people I am the sun because I, I am. And so, like, you're created in this in this divine image. And the any I like to say that the enneagram is nine versions of the divine, each one that sits within us, and we spend our lives unshovel like shoveling away and and getting the dirt away from the the dirty human parts to get to that divine and find that divinity within us. And I feel like that has helped me connect with my family and my friends. That's helped me connect with the earth. That's helped me connect with the universe. That's helped me connect with God or whatever you want to call it. But for me, really, I, I look at 
I look at the divine that sits within us and the human that's been buried on top of it. And when I say human, I don't mean that humanity or flesh is dirty. I mean the humanity, like the lies, the scarring, the childhood wounds, the things that we we feel in our in ourselves are not right. All of that stuff has been piled on top of that divinity. And life is just one big search to coming to realize that there's divinity inside of all of us. And that's that's the way I see it now. Mm, it's beautiful, Jackie. I just mm-hmm. I, I love the way that you describe that. I, I'm also curious how you are known to ruin Christmas. <laughs> how and why is this is 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 this an intentional choice? Is it that you bring up uncomfortable subject matter at the dinner table? Given g- g- given your backdrop and your your spiritual beliefs and your work, uh, how, could you describe to me exactly? How is it that you are known as the Grinch? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. So this is actually going to be um, – this might open up a different conversation, but here we go. Perfect. When I got out of college, I was working with survivors of sex trafficking, and it was like the greatest job, and it was beautiful. I was headhunted for a job at a nonprofit doing seven roles for the price of one, like I said. It was working for a church. And over the course of the time that I was there, I kept telling them I'm not really gifted in this thing. Like I, I was a warm body. At first, I was like a, the admin and the the personal assistant. And I was like, perfectly great at that because I'm a two. And then um, I kept growing. They're like, oh yeah, well, we need someone to take over events. We need someone to take over the pastor's project management. I was like, okay, I could do those things. We need someone to take over marketing. And I was like, what? And then also finance admin. And I, so anyway, it just started growing and growing hospitality, youth, blah, blah, blah. And essentially what happened was that during Christmas, we had a few things going on that year. And I was in charge of the guests that were flying in and their itineraries, the hospitality, feeding volunteers, getting volunteers together, the pastor's lives. I mean, everyone's life. We had a merger. We were going to merge with another church. And I was in charge of like a million areas. Now, long story short, we had to do a Christmas video for a charitable thing that we do every year, giving Christmas away, where we raise money and just pick a cause in our, in our local community and give to it. And the video just wasn't great sound quality wise because I sent an intern and a, and a seasoned person to do the video, but I, I sent them to do it. I delegated it because I had a million other things to do for that season. And I was told it was the worst Christmas we've ever had because the video sucked and that I ruined Christmas. And I was like, oh. So I, I was the reason it's in my Twitter bio, which I was so, so, so funny you found it. But um, one of my friends was like, I dare you to put it in your Twitter bio. <laughs> 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 and it was like challenge accepted. So I ruined Christmas one time. But. Wow. Oh wow! Okay, How does so- that feel to to be told that? I mean, when I hear that again as as a potential type one, <laughs> if somebody told me that I ruined Christmas, I'd just be devastated. You know, I was devastated, but for a different reason because I I, I knew I wasn't. I was like it was like dual sided. It was like I know I could have done better if this was the only thing I was doing. But I was doing a million other things and I don't have the language to say that. What ended up happening was, like I said, I I moved out of the state. I went to North Carolina and I spent some time there. And upon coming back, I was able to actually have that conversation because they wanted to give me my job back because the the people that came after me, they started taking roles away from them. They're like, I don't know how you did this. And I was like, I didn't. That's why I ruined Christmas. So, but when I came back and they wanted to offer me the job, it was, I was very clear. I said no. And I was like, you know, they're like, you know, I think we expected too much of you. I was like, you think? Like I was able to say like, you set me up for failure actually by not listening to me when I said, I can't be a warm body anymore. I don't care if there's a need here, hire someone find a volunteer. I can't do 17 things at once. So that that's how it, it felt because I, I kind of, I was already at the breaking point of like done. But if it had happened maybe months earlier if it, in the grand scheme of things, I probably would have 
punished myself very tough because I would have been like seeing how it affects individual people being a people person I would have been like oh it affects them it affects them it affects them like this it affects them like this giving Christmas away sucked because of this and I just was like you know what I was netting seven times less a week than I should have been actually making so no I don't feel bad for anything I'm just like you deserve to hear what you need to hear but I kind of just rationalized it I want to talk about creativity for a second Jackie and I want to talk about Steve Jobs. <laughs> and I, first of all, in reference to the Steve Jobs movie, did you prefer the Ashton Kutcher performance or the Michael Fassbender performance? Ashton Kutcher, because he's really hot. Ah, in, that's, <laughs> you know what? And I feel like that is an uncommon choice. Yeah, Most well, people are going to go Fassbender. So what, what about that film sent you into a creative spiral and, and go deeper into that because I really want to know the story behind this. Yeah. So honestly, I, I bought a pair of mom jeans and a black turtleneck and my boyfriend was like, you look like Steve Jobs. And then he was like, oh, we should watch that movie this weekend. So that's literally how it happened. So we, we watched the movie on my TV and- Which one Which one did you watch? The Ashton Kutcher one. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And we're watching it and I was like, I hadn't started my business yet at the time. And I was like, he was really, really smart. He has this like multi-million dollar brain and then eventually he has a like multi-million billion dollar business. And I was like, I can do that. And then I started watching how he did it. And I was like, well, like he had no means, but like it was about how much he really believed his brain was worth or his ideas were worth. And I was like, I think my ideas are worth millions and billions and squillions. So I was like, babe, should I start a business? And he was like, yeah, sure. About what? Like he, like he was so nonchalant about it. He, I don't think he thought I was going to do it. But as I watched it, I realized that, and obviously it's dramatized. So I was inspired by the drama. But really, I was like, okay, this guy who had nothing, was expected to finish nothing, was apparently good for nothing, had a, a brain and an idea. And how he got there, he just used what he had in front of him. So he had like these random friends who could do this. And he had this friend who could do that. He found this computer shop who would buy it for this or whatever. And he just did what he he just hustled until he got there and I was like oh like I want to do that I have a multi-million dollar idea in my head of people who live sustainable lives I can do that and so I was like I'm doing it and then a few months later I got let go from my job I was working in finance there was a huge cut it was like 40 people in one day and I was one of them and I was like I have to start this business now and that's what I did did you continue to dress like Steve Jobs? Like, did you have a, a closet full of turtlenecks and mom jeans or did it just stop at one one outfit? Okay, so I have one pair of mom jeans, but I have turtlenecks in like every color you could think of. So <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> I am Steve Jobs. I am. I, I like to say that I, I want to be somewhere and I get judged for this a lot, but I don't really give a shit. I want to be somewhere in between the female version of Steve Jobs and the female version of Dan Bilzerian. Hold on. <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. What about Dan Bilzerian? <laughs> are you extracting from his life? The what? The boat and the plane. I don't. Okay, look, I don't want a lot of half naked honeys around me. I don't care. Okay. About that. Okay. That's not my thing. Unless Zach Efron wants to come on my boat. We good. But I really I love his life. I, and I love I mean, I have a lot more self-control, I like to think. And I also like have a heart to helping people like I want to be able to like pay someone's tuition just because I can. But I, I love I love that he's like, OK, I can do my business. I can do my work from wherever. So I'm going to take a boat ride throughout Greece and just enjoy and bring people with me. Like, I love that. Like as a two, as a helper, that speaks to me. Like you can't afford a vacation. Come on my boat, bitch. Like, let's go. You know, that's that's, that's what I want. 
So, okay, let's talk a little bit about, I think, what came up, at least what's coming up to me around philosophies around abundance or money or or yeah. let's just use the word wealth, right? Because sure. I feel like abundance and wealth are not just about money. They're about a mm-hmm. mindset and things way beyond just the numbers in your bank account. There seems to me, at least for me, and I feel like a, a lot of people I talk to, sort of this tug of war between the idea of wanting abundance and understanding why I want it and what I want to do with specifically financial abundance, feeling super abundant in other areas of my life, but then feeling almost like, ah, but I don't really need all that money to like be happy because I can be happy now. But if I did have that money, I could take all my family on a trip to Greece and I could rescue a bunch of animals and start a foundation and blah, blah, blah. And what I'm trying to describe is this seemingly at times diametrically opposed mindset of I want to be financially abundant, right? You brought up Dan Bilzerian and Steve Jobs, right? Clearly they have done well for themselves versus, you know what? I want to stay humble. I want to do my work. It doesn't matter the numbers in my bank account. It's Mm -hmm. kind of like maybe money's a little bit dirty. We live in a toxic capitalist culture, blah, blah, blah. So how have you experienced, I guess maybe, or have you experienced both of those sides of the coin? And is there a particular Enneagram that might struggle more with that than another? That's a really, oh my God, those are such good questions. So I like to think, first of all, I don't think money's dirty. Money is not dirty. Money is not the root of all evil. Your heart, when it comes to how you see money, is dirty. And how you get money is dirty, if if it is, right? So like, I think, I don't think it should be like, I think, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and. I think it's, I don't need this, but I want it and that's okay. And if you want money because you want a big house and you want to live a lavish life, that's okay too. I think really what comes to me is like justice in how you get money and justice in like paying taxes and all that stuff. Like that's what comes to me. But like really what I think is like money is, I don't want to get like woo woo, but like money is energy. Money is nothing. Like when I have a friend and she's like, I just want to make more money. My family never had money. And I'm like, what the hell's money? What is money? It's not even bits of paper anymore. We can't even say that, right? It's all on a card. Like, what is money? And she's like, money is like, I can I can do what I want. I can go when I want. I can take a vacation. And I'm like, okay, so money is safety. Money is security. Money is fun. Money is is facilitates friendships and what you can do for people. So money is an energy. It's a route that you take to get to those things. So yeah, I do think we should be able to find those things in our everyday life without money. And when we do, when we do have money in the future, we can still have those things, but we've been able to like facilitate it well. And that's why I think people think money is dirty because they feel guilty about having it and having so much and that other people are struggling. But I think the reality, like the reality is that like, you know, cash does rule everything, like money rules everything. But if that doesn't apply to your life, like I don't feel like it applies to mine. I don't, I used to struggle and and feel really guilty about wanting money because I was poor. Because I grew up poor, I struggled with wanting money because I thought it was selfish. And I was like, no, 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 no. I, I can want money to pay someone's tuition, but I can also want money because I deserve money for what work I put out there as long as I earn it honestly and i wise and responsible with it. I think every Enneagram type struggles with their relationship with money and every Enneagram type also loves money. You know, I think it's it's a human thing. I will say that like, for example... It depends on your level of health. So I have a friend who's an Enneagram 7 who loves, you know, going from one thing to the next, loves abundance, loves extra, like will order one thing off the menu, like one of everything off the menu if she could. And she's been like kind of in an awakening and, you know, really minimalistic living. And so she, we were driving down the shore, which is what we call the beach in New Jersey. (laughs) We're driving down the shore and she's like, oh, look at these big houses. Like, what do you need? I was like, what if that person has a big family or a company and they want to sleep 30 people at once? And she's like, I guess. She was like, what do you need all this stuff for? And I was like, if you had a lot of money and you had a motivation to like build a big house, would it be wrong? She's like, I guess not. So I think I think it just depends on you know where you're at and how you view money and how you viewed money growing up. But for me, like I just I think money's energy. 
I think money is a route to something. And I think that's why a lot of people fail when it comes to money and they get angry with money because they don't know what they want. They just want money. So they fail at everything they do instead of like investing in what they're really gifted in, which is going to in turn bring money. Um, But yeah. Well, similar to money being such a big struggle for a lot of people, so are relationships. So I'm curious how, like as you're speaking about money, what's your perspective on relationships with the different types and how they navigate it? That's a great question. A lot of people ask me like, what types should I date based on my type? And I'm like, if you're asking me that question, nobody, like don't date anybody. (laughs) Why, why is that your answer? Like, because if you're really looking for the person that's going to like give you the easy ride because of your personality type, uh, well, like, are you really willing to grow with someone? So my boyfriend's a five and it, they're polar opposites, twos and fives, because twos are like, love me and let me love you. And fives are like, get the fuck away from me. I'm on the, I'm on the computer. Like, get away. <laughs> like, you know, and so it's everybody gets along and also nobody gets along. It depends on how healthy you are and how much you can see past your worldview to see another person thinks differently. That's all it is. I could be in a relationship with anybody I want, but it depends on their level of self-awareness and their growth and their ability to see things from my perspective and and vice versa. So when it comes to relationships now, yes, people are going to like my boyfriend and I, my partner and I, we have these very typical two and five struggles where I'm like, I just need a little bit more attention today and, and a little bit more love. And he's like, I just don't have the energy to like give it to you. And that's a struggle. And it's not a misunderstanding. It's something that we just move past and hope better for the future and work better for the future. But realistically, if you are a grown ass person and you want to date someone that you just click really well with without any like tension, like I think there's a deep rooted issue there. And I think there's like a fear of failure behind that. I think not 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 to say that I want like you shouldn't date someone that you specifically are going to have trouble with. Like that person and I really rub the wrong way. Let's date. Like, no, that's not a good idea. But really, it's about how well you've grown and how the other person is growing and how you guys see each other's worldviews and what lens you're allowing yourself to see through. And then at that point, it's not that you get along with people, but it's just that there are less parameters in your in your own head and in your heart to who you can be with. You can be with anyone you want to be with. That is such a wonderful perspective and very refreshing because I feel like in the dating world, it's kind of like this cliche of trying to figure out like what sign you are when you meet somebody and are you compatible? And like we kind of examine all of that. And I don't think I've ever really thought about it the way that you are positioning it, which is are you trying to figure out out these things about people so you can kind of protect yourself or guarantee success in some way? And I agree. It is A lot of times we're attracted to people for reasons that are really hard to explain. And I I think for me and a number of people I've talked to, like there's this fear, are we attracting the wrong person because, you know, we're drawn to people that are bad for us. And there's like this ongoing fear. But one thing that I've found really nice lately is hearing this perspective of like, it's not that necessarily that someone's bad for you. It's like you just might need to do some growth together and and giving people more of a chance where something that we talked about in a recent episode was that there's this like a lot of female empowerment lately seems to be around if this guy treats you this way, you know, you deserve so much better. And like this idea of if like a guy doesn't know how to treat you well, like you need to move on and hit him by Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this to me, I guess I find that kind of sad because 
there's one thing like if someone's like genuinely not good for you, of course, like in an abusive relationship, like that's very black and white. But I also feel like there are so many gray areas when it comes to dating because the opposite sex or or the same sex, depending on who you're assigned to date, like they're struggling too. you know, like they have work to do on themselves. And if if they have a characteristic that makes them, quote, not suitable, then how are they ever going to date anybody? You know what I mean? Like they need an opportunity to be loved and grow as a person as well. So I'm just I've been really interested in that lately and this idea of not always trying to find someone who's already perfect and already whatever you want. But what if you can just pay attention to that undescribable chemistry sometimes and and give that relationship a chance because that person is human as well. That's so true. So when I first started dating my my partner, I was part of a church community that I'm no longer part of anymore and a lot of reasons. But I remember talking to my roommate who was also part of that community and I remember telling her nothing about him. I just because she was very judgy and I was like, oh, I'm just going on a date. And I never mentioned it again. And we had been dating for about two months at the time. And so she was like, I kind of felt like you were like settling in the beginning. And I remember specifically not telling her anything, but I just remember saying to her like, but why? And she was like, oh, because he this and I don't think he pursues you and all this stuff. And I remember telling her, telling my roommate, I don't want to judge base someone based on my expectation of them. I yes. want to judge him based on himself. So what I did was I told her, I was like, I took these two months to get to know him because I don't want the sliding scale to be based on me. You're not good enough based on what I want. No, it's actually, hey, actually, I, I notice you always really excel in this area and you seem to be like pulling away from it. Like, are you okay? Are things okay? It's like, I don't want to judge a man based on my expectation. I want to judge a man based on himself. And I think that's where people get it so wrong. They're like, they want someone who is like up to par, but they're not up to par themselves. And I watched this person also, my roommate, get into a relationship with an Enneagram type five and spiral. And it didn't work out because she couldn't understand how he saw the world, like his worldview and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's very interesting to me when people have these like high expectations, but like give no return either. So it's like, I, yeah, I have certain expectations, like stand up when I walk into a room. I think that's really sweet. Like, I don't know. I'm just saying like, <laughs> I have some expectations of like, you know, treating me well at a baseline and like all that stuff. But the rest we grew together and we did. We, a lot of people were like, you guys are not going to work out. We've been together for two years. We're looking at wedding venues. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit about what anyone else says. Like I am, a, I'm a growing person. And so is he, and we're growing together. So I think it's dating these days is, is has become a lot more accessible and more beautiful, but it's also a little bit more more shallow. I think the more self-aware we are, the more we start to have expectations of other people. And that's just not what self-awareness is. Oh, yes. And, and empowered too. Because I mean, there's like a feminist perspective of like, I deserve the best. I want to be treated like the queen that I am. And certainly there's, there's like some positive elements of that outlook. But are you also but- the best? for that person. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me how, yeah, this whole, it's like this idea of like a checklist, like this person has to do this, this, and this. Otherwise they're not worth dating. They're not good enough. Or like you're saying this they're I'm settling or whatever else. And I guess like my heart just goes out the more that I learn about personality types it's or love languages or tendencies. And I think that's part of the reason I love these these frameworks so much is because it's actually opening my eyes to all of these different 
ways that people live and the places that they're coming from and their traumas. I mean, there's just so many factors in what shapes somebody's behavior. Mm -hmm. And as we were saying from before, you might not be able to change your type, but you can evolve as a person and become that, quote, better version of yourself, however else. There's got to be a better way of phrasing that. Have you come across it, Jackie? Because as we said earlier, this idea of like become the best version of yourself It's nice, but also cliche. And I would really love to find a better way of expressing that sentiment. I mean, I like to say like, like raising your level of awareness or like raising your level of alignment or like, I like the word, you know, aligning with your essence or whatever. Like, Mm -hmm. I like the the phrase, like who you are supposed to be and not who you are. Um, So I I, I like, I think, you know, that works in in some ways. But I, I also think too, like when you're meeting somebody, I always tell people like whether it's a coworker or someone in a relationship, just pretend that they're eight years old, like eight years old, because most of the time it's, we are ourselves at eight years old with larger skin suits on. You're meeting someone's inner child every time you talk to them. So like just pretend they're eight years old and, and see it from that perspective, the way you'd see, why is this eight-year-old crying for no reason? And it's like, oh, it's like they, they're probably just sad about something and they can't vocalize it or they're probably frustrated about, you know, so being able to see human beings in that same way, I think is really, really helpful and it helps you. Then you can say like, okay, I'm obviously not making excuses for them or oh, I think I'm making excuses way too much. I think this person's just a bully and not for me. You know, because right. I think yeah. a lot of women go, oh, yeah, like just and I've said this before and, and I'm sorry, Jason, but like I just say like take a man's age, subtract six years. That's how old he really is. Is this who we want to date? Like, huh. <laughs> I'm thinking about that now. Yeah, that's it's accurate. Okay, good. It's accurate. Yeah. I, I think that there's better ways to go about it. You know what I mean? So, you know. I, I'm curious about ego, Jackie, because this is coming up. One of my favorite tweets was you talking about how the ego is a child. And especially in relation to, to acknowledging that within each of us, there's an inner child that is in many cases wounded or traumatized or we're trying to heal with it. And, and sometimes it emotes or expresses itself in a way that, that can't be perfectly verbalized. Or maybe we haven't allowed or learned our how to perfectly verbalize that. But going to the core of ego itself, I feel like a lot of messages and rhetoric that we hear in the, I guess, transformational conscious community is how bad ego is and the ego should be killed and the ego is this and blah, blah, blah. But I'm curious if you feel that the ego can be leveraged for good and if it can be, how so? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think being able to and people think this is like very woo woo or spiritual or like that, that's fucking weird. I'm not doing that. But like you talk to your ego like you talk to another person, like you talk to a child. So I have boundaries with my ego because I have boundaries with people. So when my mom, my mom, right, is, for example, is going crazy and telling me, like, you can't start a business. It's going to fail within the first year. And blah, 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 blah. I I respect your opinion. I respect that you're telling me this stuff. I, I really appreciate that you are attempting to look out for me, but I disagree. I think it's a minimizing mindset. I'm going to try it anyway. And if I fail, that's okay. And the same way I would do that to another person, I would do that with my ego. So, like, my ego is always telling me that I don't deserve more money. And I, like, listen, I respect that. And I appreciate that. I think you're just afraid of what I'm going to do when I have money. And I have a lot of plans and I have a great heart and I know what I'm going to do when I have money. And it starts with paying off my loans and it starts with X, Y, and Z. And talking to your ego like you talk to another person, giving you feedback that you have boundaries with is important. Your ego will always be part of you. Killing off the ego, minimizing the ego. Like I, I'm not all for, I'm not for death to death to self People preach like death to your flesh, death to your ego, death to – and I'm like, I think that's so stupid. Like if you were built with these beautiful things that are meant to be your inner committee, your inner guides in a sense, 
you know, because there's some decisions you can't make with anybody else. And that's why I feel like, you know, the universe or the divine or God has equipped us with these things, including a conscious, whatever. I, I think making them your friends and not seeing them as enemies. So like the point of your ego is always going to be something that tries to protect you or bring you down, but like out of fear, out of smallness. And if you remember that, if you remember your ego is always small and full of fear, you can address that well. That doesn't have to become you. Like if you are a person that makes yourself small or makes yourself afraid to move into a, a relationship or move into a job or move into whatever, you are taking on the persona of your ego and nobody wants to do that. So really just being able to see those parts of you as separate is important. I had something to say and then I totally lost it. <laughs> Welcome to This Might Get Uncomfortable when you have a thought and then drop it like it's hot. Oh, <laughs> Whitney, my brain just farted. Do you have, do you have a follow-up for Jackie? <laughs> I mean, I just feel like there's so many little rabbit holes that we can go down through this conversation. And sadly, we're, we're getting close to the end of the episode. And so I'm like, gosh, what, what do we possibly end with here? Oh, you know? I know. I have an idea. I have an idea. I have Let's an idea. Hear it. Jackie and Whitney. Jackie, if you were a dinosaur, what kind of dinosaur would you be? <laughs> really? Yeah, I love dinosaurs. I have dinosaurs all over my apartment. <laughs> it's like I feel like you. I feel like you know me. <laughs> well, you said Brachiosaurus. Why? Yeah. Why Brachiosaurus? I just like the long neck. It is a sexy neck, right? It's such a sexy neck, and I'm like really short. I'm like okay. I'm in in person. I'm five one and a little stumpy. So I like a big, long, elegant neck. I don't want to be a meatball anymore. I want to be a Brachiosaurus. <laughs> That's a great answer, <laughs> w- Whitney. If you were a dinosaur, what kind of dinosaur would you be? I mean, I don't know if this is a, a, a type one tendency, but I really don't like being put on the spot because I like to, it must be a type one thing because I like to research and like decide the best, most like, uh, how do I put this? I like to go and evaluate things. Is that a type one characteristic, Jackie? That is. It's, it's, a, it's a type one characteristic, but it's also <laughs> um, a type five characteristic, which I find interesting. Oh. One that I've a lot in common. Okay. Well, yeah, for me, I'm like, gosh, I want to look at all the options and then evaluate and decide which one's best. And I honestly am not as into dinosaurs as the two of you are. So I don't even know enough aside. I'm like literally going through the dinosaurs I know from the movie Jurassic Park. Like that's how I (laughs) try to decide. I mean, I think I'm always fascinated by the T-Rex. Like that might be one of my favorites. And I I don't know if like most kids are. I certainly wouldn't want to be a T-Rex. Like I don't want people to be scared of me. (laughs) But I just find them so fascinating. As a side note, when I was growing up, I was also super fascinated by great white sharks. Like, I think the great white sharks are kind of like the T-Rex of the ocean. Like, people are just like fascinated and terrified by them. But in terms of which one I would want, is it is the question, which one do I want to be, Jason, or which one do I identify with? Yeah, if you were a dinosaur, which one would you be? Like, so physically, if you imagine yourself embodying a dinosaur body. Huh. Oh. See, that's what I mean. I'd have to, like, go through and, like, look at all their characteristics. But, you know, the one that, like, first came to mind, which I suppose may be the best answer when you're put on the spot, is the Triceratops. Yes, it's also oh. the one that more, most closely resembles my dog. Yes, oh. I was thinking I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah, she she looks like a baby triceratops. Yeah. So cute. I need to can you can you like tweet me a picture of it? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
I have to say though, if you, if you're, I mean, the way you said like physically embody a dinosaur, like if you're saying that now and my imagination's not involved, I'm most likely a velociraptor because I'm like tiny and I'm like about everything. So I I feel like if I can change my answer, dad, I would pick velociraptor. (laughs) You know, it's funny too, is like, I just pulled up images of dinosaurs. <laughs> What's the one called that has like the little spikes across all of its back? Stegosaurus. Stegosaurus. Yeah. Those are cute too. I think I like, I mean, again, like I'm fascinated by the mean dinosaurs, but yeah, like the Brontosaurus and the Stegosaurus, the Triceratops, they're all like, I imagine it cute dinosaurs, but is that just because we've been told that through movies? Ooh. You know, like the movies have convinced us to be terrified of certain dinosaurs. I don't know. What I think is interesting, too, is that Jackie selected a plant-eating dinosaur and that you, Whitney, selected a carnivorous dinosaur. <laughs> is, is it Triceratops car- Oh, no. Carnivorous? I'm sorry. No, you when T-Rex was carnivorous. Oh, no, tri- yeah. Triceratops was also plant-eater. Right. And those were, we always perceived them as like the gentle dinosaurs because they weren't like trying to kill each other. Well, I don't know. Apes apes eat plants and they could kill you in a second if you want if they wanted to. So. Truly, <laughs> truly. Do you, do you, is this reflective of your own actual human dietary choices, Jackie? Are you a plant fan? Do you enjoy eating plants? Yeah, I like I like living foods. I was plant-based for a really long time and then my digestive system started to be like, "Wow, go fuck yourself." And so I <laughs> couldn't eat as <laughs> I couldn't eat as much broccoli as I wanted to. So I I did start to have to eat some like eggs and meat and seafood and then have been cutting out those things slowly but I, i'm a i love plants like give me a big mother effing salad all day right on i love that we, we all share that so we we often talk about the the healing power of plants here on the podcast so yay to herbivores herbivores <laughs> real in the world and maybe I feel sometimes like- you need to kill when you have to but try I want to go see if there's a dinosaur personality test, like just like that pasta test that you might <laughs> oh, have. This would be amazing. Like, what what, what dinosaur, dinosaur are you? There's got to be. I'm looking it up right now. Of there's course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Let's um, see. Yep. The Natural Natural History Museum has has a quiz and National Geographic does as well. So anyone out there wants to know what dinosaur they are, you can find out. I love that. <laughs> well, with that... We've covered so much ground, Jackie. Like I, I feel like we could just keep going and going and going and going. And and I also feel like next time we are on the East Coast, it'd be great to get together, have a cup of joe, have a matcha, eat some salads, keep being sassy because you are just wonderful. Your energy is amazing. And, and you've been such a joy, just absolute ray of sunshine here on the podcast. I appreciate that. I I, lo- I love you guys like immediately. I love your questions. And I'm sorry, if you're on the East Coast, you need to get a real bagel. I, I can't. If you're, if you're next to New York, you need to get a real bagel. I'm sorry. Like, I don't real pizza. And real pizza. Like, I don't know what you guys think your bread with a hole is. It's not a bagel. <laughs> Wait, now, is it the water? Is it the mineral content of it's, the water? It's the water. It is it is the water. It's the fact that, like, a lot of places bake it. Like, even if you go to a Panera around here, like, they bake their bread. And I'm like, what does that fucking do? Like, you're supposed to boil it, you idiot. Boil it and then bake it. Like, I just, I get so mad. I'm so passionate about bagels. So. Yes, you know, and it's extra tricky for us being vegan, and both of us choose to eat gluten free as well, oh, and it's yeah. tough. I will say, in LA, there's one or two places that has some pretty solid vegan gluten free bagels, but I bet you that there's got to be something even better out there. Yeah. Yo, I'm 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 gonna get on the gluten. Look, if Jack is gonna guide us to the promised land, 
I'm going to get off the gluten train or get on the gluten train <laughs> for a solid ass New York bagel. Okay? Yeah, that's true. So I eat gluten free as well. And I make exceptions for two things, for bagels and for really good pizza. Like I'll do a pizza, uh, gluten free pizza crust because there's like lots of Trader Joe's around here. But I will tell you, <laughs> I will tell you if someone says, do you want to get bagels? My first question is not, is it gluten free? My first question is, is it from New York? So... <laughs> And you know what? Since all three of us also struggle with digestive challenge, which I think most people do, you know, it's worth it. It's worth having those moments where you splurge and maybe don't feel as good. And I feel like the body can handle it. And there's a lot of really great enzymes out there that you can take to get you through those moments of indulging. I want to be friends with you guys. If you guys have a group chat, can you include me in it? (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. We want to be friends with you too. It's uh, this is great. It's this is one of the perks of having a podcast is getting to know people very intimately, and yeah. hopefully, we have a lot of listeners that feel the same. I, I know I'm excited to listen to your podcast because you're just such a wealth of knowledge, and I feel like we learn so much about each other. And this has just been so wonderful. So we're going to link to not only where you can find Jackie, but everything that we've mentioned today, including the what type of pasta are you quiz. <laughs> so if the listener wants to go dive deep in, which I can't imagine you wouldn't want to after listening to this, like yeah. there's got to be such a huge curiosity. I know it's it's created that within me and, and behind the scenes, I'm like clicking on all of these things I want to read later. So we put those in our show notes at wellevator.com, which is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And if you go to the website, there is the podcast section and every single episode, including this one, has a transcript so you can go in and read back over anything we spoke about today, as well as a list of all the resources that we mentioned at the bottom, like Jackie's website and her Instagram and her podcast and the quizzes and the books that we mentioned. All of it is there for you. There's a comment section if you want to be part of the conversation or you can reach us on social media. We're at Wellevator. And Jackie, your Instagram I have right here somewhere. What is it? Remind me. A table for nine coaching, right? Yep. It's F-O-R and the digit nine. Excellent. Yes. It's good that you spell that out because four could be spelled as a number, but is table for nine, Mm -hmm. which you know what? It just clicked in my head what that meant. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Now I feel really silly as in the nine different types. Yep. It's funny how I I just kind of like went right over my head till this moment. So (laughs) now I will never forget it. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate you guys having me on and I can't wait to stay connected with you guys. Likewise, Jackie. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 